Well, I want to read two passages of Scripture today. The first will be the, the two verses that we've been reading, the, sort of our uh, launch pad. And then if you will, go ahead and be ready to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So read Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. And then I'll read 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy, instructing him on how he ought to behave in the household of God, the church. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are seeking a twofold work of the Spirit. We're asking that the Spirit would not only reveal the truth, but that the Spirit would also give us wisdom and understanding so that we might understand what's been revealed. If either one of those is missing, Father, we're going to fall short. So we ask that, that you would do that for us. Teach us from your Word. Make us a people of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In order to keep vivid in your mind, again, the layout of our labors in these two verses from Matthew, I'm going to take a few moments again and, and recap where we've been. First week, we unpacked Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, and we saw the, the primary doctrine there flowing out of the teaching of corrective church discipline is that when a local church carries out corrective church discipline, it carries with it the authority of God because Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the local church. The local church exercises that authority. And then we flow out of that into verses 19 and 20 of that chapter and we learn that the the practical rationale for that authority and that power is not in just in the fact that we've gotten together and it's not in the fact that there's strength in numbers, but rather there's power found because the presence of Christ gathers, comes and meets with us in the midst of a gathered praying church. He's present with us as a praying people. And so a church that would rightly exercise the keys of the kingdom must be a praying church. It's not just any group of people who decide to get together. It must be a praying church. And then we begin to unpack the, the applications of that. If, that. if that is the case, then we need to understand first a biblical defense of corporate prayer. And that was what we studied in the second week. We walked through the scriptures from the beginning all the way through the example of the New Testament and we saw that 
God's people have always been a praying people. Always. You never find a situation where the true people of God are not gathered and publicly worshiping and praying. And we also saw that a New Testament church should have as a distinctive of its ministry gathered corporate prayer. Now, when I say distinctive, I don't mean distinctive from other churches. That should be a, a staple of all local churches, but distinctive from the world. When we gather together, we're, we're supposed to be distinguished in our activities. People from the world can get together and they can sing together in a concert hall. They can get together in a, a university and hear a lecture and learn educational things, even about the Bible. But as a local church, we gather, and one of the distinctives of that gathering should be calling upon the name of the Lord, a, a gathered corporate prayer. I hope you agree there. I hope we've, we've laid that foundation, defended that from Scripture so that we can then move forward. Last week, we looked at a biblical or the biblical disposition of corporate prayer. That is the biblical arrangement of corporate prayer. We saw that from a biblical perspective, true corporate prayer should consist of the corpus, the body. It should be characterized by faithful women who pray, by faithful men who lead in prayer, visibly and audibly. And it should be characterized by a built-up, edified, encouraged, strengthened body. And I told the men yesterday, the more we gather on Saturday mornings to pray, the more I'm convinced that when that begins to happen in this worship service, it'll be better than any sermon I could preach. It will build this church up in ways that we can't describe. It is, it is truly a, a wonderful thing when that happens. The church body is strengthened. Well, today we come to the third of three main points of application. Again, we've got the doctrine from the two verses, and then we're walking down three main points of application. And so the title of this sermon is The Biblical Description of Corporate Prayer. The Biblical Description. And we want to begin to answer the question, what should the corporate prayers of God's people sound like? with regard to their demeanor and their content. What should the corporate prayers of God's people sound like with regard to their demeanor and their content? In other words, many churches would advertise their worship service as laid back. We have a very laid back worship service. Should we approach God in a manner that we would describe as laid back, as comfortable? Should we simply, when we pray, just name and claim anything that entices our flesh? Should we seek to blab and grab every carnal lust that pops into our heads while our eyes are closed and our minds are wandering out into the world? We just throw it out there. Should those men who lead the congregation in prayer try to mention every ache and pain known to exist in their immediate family, and also both sides of their extended family, twice removed? Should those men who lead in prayer offer up prayers of private matters, known only to them, where the, the request, requester expected confidentiality, in other words, gossiping in our prayers, saying things that shouldn't be named out in public? Is that what we should expect? Well, we're going to try to answer those types of questions in a broad sense, beginning today, and, and we'll move into next week also, by, 
by considering a big picture of the substance and etiquette of corporate prayers. Do we just pray for everything or are there specific things that should characterize the, the corporate prayers of God's people? Now I want to qualify this week and next week. We'll probably finish next week by saying that all of this is not the final word on prayer. It has not been my intention to give a full biblical theology of prayer, walking through every prayer of the Bible, although that would thrill me to death, to just take every prayer listed in the Bible and walk through it and say, here's what prayer is. But that's, that's not been our goal. We're simply trying to understand in a general sense what is appropriate for the prayers of God's gathered people. When we get together, and I hope you understand there are differences between what we do as a corporate body and what you do in your private prayer closet or your private prayer time. It's going to look different. So that being said, by way of introduction, I want to unpack a biblical description of corporate prayer under two main headings, one today and one next week. Today we'll look at the attitude of our prayers, and then next week we'll look at the substance of our prayers. In other words, today we're asking... How should we pray? And next week we'll ask, for what should we pray? So how should we pray? Today the, the subheading under a biblical description of corporate prayer, the attitude of our prayers. And we're going to use 1 Timothy chapter 2 as our primary focus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, I'll read it again. First of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now in this verse, the apostle uses various words all referring to what we would call prayer. And we can tell by the, the uses of these words throughout Scripture and how they are often substituted and related to each other that he's not giving us a list of essentially different kinds of prayer. He's not saying, remember to give your supplication and then stop. And then remember to give your prayers and then stop. He, he's piling on words to paint a picture of prayer in general. And I think each word that's used here gives us a different perspective or a different flavor, a different attitude that we should have as we offer up our prayers. I also believe that each of these words, when considered that way, when they, when they show us what our attitude should be, they also teach us something about the God to whom we pray. If, if the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures, or he, he inspires the Scriptures, and He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made, He's giving us words that concern prayer. And those prayers concern the God to whom we pray. Therefore, we learn not just about ourselves and not just about what we should be doing, but we learn about God. Amen. So, what I want to do is walk through these four words. Very simple. These four words, I'll give a definition. I'll give a scriptural example of that type of prayer. We'll talk about the attitude that is implied with that word. And then we'll also talk about the character of God that is implied by that word. So we'll begin with this first word. Paul says, I urge that supplications be made for all people. Supplications is the first word. And, and you'll notice I've put less scripture up here than normal on the screens because I do want us to get into the habit of using our Bibles. 
So you just have the heading there, supplications. Now because various uses of this term or variations of this term are also used and have been used in matters between men, we know that the focus of this word supplications is on the person praying. In other words, because a man can give a supplication to another man, then we know that that word is not primarily dealing with God. It's dealing with how men could interact with one another. But here, of course, it's dealing with prayer. The idea of a supplication is that it comes from a sense, a felt sense of lack or need. A felt sense of lack or need. This word, supplications, assumes humility on the part of the one praying. It assumes neediness on the part of the one offering the prayer. It's sometimes called a petition or an entreaty. So supplications often address the obvious needs of oneself or others. If, you, if you're good with word associations, think of the word supply. Supplication, supply. In other words, when you offer up a prayer of supplication, you're saying to God, supplies are low in whatever the, that specific need might be. Supplies are low, so I'm going to offer up a supplication to God. So we have an example in Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 through 19. And you can write these down and go back and look at them later. Just listen to these. Again, hear, hear these as prayers. Prayers recorded in Scripture. Daniel here praying. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice there, as Daniel prays, he realizes we are a sinful people. Our city's been ruined. We're in captivity. We need mercy. We need action. We need, we, God, we need you to move here. We need your provision and your care. He's calling out because supplies are low. He's looking for God to give him that which he senses that he needs. And he's praying on behalf of his people. A great example of a corporate prayer. So what kind of attitude does this teach us with, regarding, or with regard to prayer? Well, the rendering of a supplication to God assumes, again, that the one praying comes humbly before God. They come as a needy person and they know it. I'm in need. They're aware of their own lack. They willingly admit that there is an insufficiency here, whether it's spiritual I'm bankrupt, I'm needy. Whether it's physical, I'm sick, I need help. Whether it's financial, Lord, I'm broke, I don't know what to do. You, you sense a need. 
And so you come to God. The supply is low. And so I need help. You're, you're offering this supplication. Now what does that teach us about God? Well, it teaches, since we are commanded to offer supplications, that we should see God as our ultimate provider. People who pray prayers of supplication realize that God is the owner of all things and the dispenser of all good things. They believe that God is competent to provide, that He's powerful to provide. They believe He's sovereign and willing to give His blessings. In other words, they, look at, they, 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 they turn to God because they realize that in their lack, He lacks nothing. In, in all of His giving, we might think, well, I've been, I've been offering up prayers of supplications for years. In all of His giving, His supply never diminishes. He's always there to give, whether it's physical or spiritual. God is the eternal source of sustenance. And so He says, bring your supplications. Bring them. That's the first word. The second word is the word prayers. First of all, then, I urge that, and we can skip supplications, prayers be made for all people. Now, this is the general term for prayer. Usually, we just say prayer, but I wonder how many of us know what this word means. The roots of this word imply wanting or wishing, desiring, but they also imply a specific direction. In other words, this word prayers is a directional term. It's a focused term. And in Scripture, this word is only used for prayer to God. It's directional. So, whereas supplications deals with our attitude more so, this word deals with the God to whom we pray. It implies the act of worship that is prayer. Because this word denotes devotion to God, it helps us to see that our prayers are offerings to God. They are offerings of worship and praise to God. So when we just say prayer, our general use of the term prayer, we are assuming, we are implying worship every time we, we mention prayer. So we... we in our worship services, we often say, well, we have a time of worship and we have a time of preaching. Perhaps we have a time of prayer. When we think of prayer this way, we would say, well, no, we have a time of worship and then we have a time of worship and then we have a time of worship. It's all offering, sacrifices to God. It's, a, it's an act of praise. Very often, and I think this should be the way we think of our songs, singing to God, that's praying. It is a directional, focused worship Offering of worship to God. So here's an example. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 5 through 7. The beginning of that prayer. We read the Levites. Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, talking to the people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting and then they immediately turn their attention toward God in the same sentence. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. 
the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You see, this idea of a, a focused prayer of praise and worship, we, we would generally call this a prayer of adoration. Some of you probably still use the, the acronym ACTS. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplications. This is adoration. This is prayer in general is adoration. It's focused worship to God. So again, with regard to our attitude, it does focus more so on God as the object of our prayers. And so it assumes, if we're offering prayers, it assumes that the one offering the prayers is a person of singular focus and devotion to the one true and living God. It assumes commitment. It assumes a desire to worship God and God alone. This person seeks to ascribe glory and honor to God and render to Him the allegiance that He deserves. That's prayers. What does this teach us about God? That He alone is to be worshipped. We don't pray to anybody else. We can ask, we can offer a supplication to another man, but we cannot offer a prayer to anyone else. It implies the one praying is a person of singular focus and devotion. It assumes commitment because He alone is to be worshipped. He alone deserves our allegiance. This word tells us that God, by His very nature, requires that we come to Him and that we praise Him, that we call upon the name of the Lord. That's why, as we saw a couple weeks ago, it was just a natural response for the godly line to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this word teaches us that our God is unlike any other. He's definitely not like us because we don't pray to each other. We might talk to each other, and that's where we have to be careful with our definitions when we say, well, prayer is talking to God. No, prayer is worshiping God. We can talk to each other. We cannot worship each other. He's definitely not like us because we're not worthy of devotion and worship. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's, he's outside of creation, distinct and separate from His creation. Therefore, He's the one that we would go to to offer prayers. He's the only one who's worthy of our prayers. And like I said last week, God of His own authority, His own initiative has said that you will not have me alongside of anything else. The people who come to God offering prayers cannot come to God alongside of something else. He will be worshipped alone or He will be not be worshipped at all. He alone is to be worshipped and so we offer Him our prayers. Prayers are worship to God. The third word is the word intercessions. Paul says, I urge that intercessions be made for all people. Now a couple ideas go into the definition of this word. First and foremost, the word intercessions implies a formal message or request submitted to a king. That's in this word intercession. It is assuming coming into the presence of a king. But it also, this type of prayer, this word it assumes or implies a third party. 
So you have you, and you have the king, and then there's a third party. So intercessions are prayers where the presence and the hearing of God are sought on behalf of a third party, either for good or for bad. As I'll give you some examples of the uses of this word intercessions. In Romans chapter 8, verse 27, Paul says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That word intercedes is the same word here. The Spirit interceding for the saints to the will of God, according to the will of God. That's a good use. We want that. We want the Spirit to intercede for us. But consider Romans chapter 11 where Paul uses the same word and he says, Do you not know that the Scripture says that Elijah, or says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? That word appeals is the same word, intercedes. He, he interceded to God against Israel. So an intercession does not have to be good. It doesn't have to be bad. It's just going into the presence of a king on behalf of a third party. So, as an example of a good intercession, probably the most famous example, apart from the intercession of Christ, in Exodus chapter 32, we read, The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's a good intercession. Moses, the, the type and, and foreshadow of Christ, interceding on behalf of the people of God, diverting the wrath of God for His people. We have another example, a good intercession in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you don't know the story, the prophet Elijah is staying with the widow of Zarephath. He's staying at her house. And then later the son dies. And so she's called Elijah to come. And it says, He cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched out himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. A good intercession brought back to life because of the prayer of Elijah. But then we have an example of a bad intercession. A bad intercession. I think this is helpful. We need to understand that imprecations are valid biblical prayers. Psalm 83, beginning in verse 9, the psalmist 
writes regarding the enemies of God. He says, Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. You see, he's praying down, calling down curses and judgment upon his enemies, the enemies of God, imprecations or valid prayers and songs. So what does this teach us about our attitude in prayer? Well, this implies, this word implies that the one offering the prayer knowingly enters into the presence of a king. But not just any king, the king of kings. Now, here's where we see these words interlap. We wouldn't say, well, when you're offering a supplication, he's not king. No, he is king. We, we remember that. We put all of this together and develop a theology of prayer we come before a king, the arranger of the kingdoms of this world, the orderer of all of the affairs of the universe. We walk into his presence. And the one offering this prayer acknowledges that he or she has an awesome responsibility to come into the presence of this great king on behalf of others, bringing their petitions or bringing their judgment into his presence. They seek either His favor or judgment on behalf of others. Intercessory prayer. When we pray this way, it shows that we have accepted the responsibility of identifying ourselves with our brothers and sisters, with this fallen world, with, with sinners, with, with unbelievers, so much so that we would involve ourselves in their struggles and bring them into the presence of God. Our lost Neighbors, friends and family members, they can't come into the presence of God. But we can go on their behalf. And so that's intercession. What does this teach us about God? Well, again, it reminds us that God is king. That God is to be feared and esteemed as king. Since He is king, and we have examples of this from Scripture, we don't come into the presence of a king without a cause or without an invitation to gain his audience is a terrible and awesome responsibility, a fearful responsibility. As a king, he expects that when you come into his presence, you come with something to say, even if you don't have words to express it. You've got something to say. The Spirit will clarify all that in his ears, but you come with something. It also reminds us that he is a loving and compassionate king. He's, he's sympathetic to the plight of his people. He welcomes his people, even when they come on behalf of others. He, he wants that. He commands that. And we're reminded that in light of the intercession of his own son, that we can come into his presence and we do not fear judgment, we do not fear condemnation, but we do come into his presence as if before a king. Again, there's no such thing as a laid-back worship service. You're either laid-back or you're serving God in worship, but the two do not mix. We remember that He is a king. So that's intercessions. 
And then the fourth word, Paul urges that thanksgivings be made. Thanksgivings are just that. They're vocalized gratitude. Thanksgivings are prayers wherein we express our thankfulness to God for His blessings. Some examples. Psalm 111. We read, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. You see, he begins by saying, I will thank the Lord. And he names his works, his blessings, his covenant, redemption, his precepts. All of these things the Lord has provided. Another example would be Psalm 138. I give, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord." For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out Your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of Your hands. Again, He's going to give the Lord thanks. Thanks Him for His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His answers to prayer, strengthening of His soul. He regards the lowly. He preserves His life. He delivers Him with His right hand. He's saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. He's offering up a prayer of thanksgiving. Now what kind of attitude does this teach or, or display for us? Well, first, a person who offers up a prayer of thanksgiving acknowledges the blessings they acknowledge that God has given them something. And I think that we fail at this very often. Very often. This is where we fall short. This is why our prayers are not full of so many more thanksgivings. It's because we, we don't even acknowledge the blessings. They acknowledge the blessings. And then they ascribe to God the credit for their blessings. They want to say thank you. It's not like a parent with their child who says, tell them thank you. It's not like that. The, the person who offers these prayers wants to. They're, they're, they're dying to give credit to God for their blessings. They notice the good gifts and the provision of God and they immediately say, Thank you, Lord. Amen. 
This is from your hand. The person praying prayers of thanksgiving has also properly distinguished between the gifts and the giver. And therefore they glorify God rather than the gift. And I, I think that's usually our root problem, when, why we don't offer thanksgivings. We, the, these shoes are just so comfortable, I love them. Did you thank God for those shoes? I've got this great, it's just such a great car. Did you thank God for the car? Oh, I just love this coat. It keeps me warm. Have you thanked God for that coat? You see, so many areas where we get so caught up in the creature, the thing, the blessing, that we forget that every good gift comes down from the Father. So what does this teach us about God? Again, it teaches us, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The person who offers a prayer of thanksgiving understands God is faithful. God hears my prayers. He listens to my prayers. He's sovereign over all of my needs and my wants. They understand that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They see that God, and not the blessings, is to be worshipped and adored through prayers of thanksgiving. You see, that's an overlap again. We worship God because of His gifts through a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer is a worship, and a thanksgiving is a type of prayer, a worshipful prayer. The person who prays prayers of thanksgiving sees that God is not simply an exalted and mighty king. He is. He's not simply so far away that we can't get near Him. He's loving. He's compassionate to provide for His people. He wants to. So, Paul urges, first of all, of priority in the church as a matter of utmost and supreme importance for the ministry of the gathered church, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made by the women who pray, by the men who lead in prayer. Again, this is not a list that we check off and say, well, I've got my supplications out of the way. These are attitudes of prayer. Now listen to this definition of prayer from John Bunyan. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for such things as God hath promised, or according to the Word, for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God. You see, these four words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, they imply affections that should be found in the heart of every believer with regard to their condition and the condition of others and the condition of the world and the condition of the church. And when those affections abound in the heart, it overflows in an outpouring of prayer. So, so the believer is one who constantly, regularly is affected in the heart by their need, their lack of any good thing apart from God, spiritual deficiency. 
We have nothing. We offer nothing. We bring nothing. We, we come because we need. The believer wants to worship God, adore God, praise God, constantly focused upon God in their heart. The believer has people all around them that they see are dying. They're lost. They're hurting. They're needy. That they're part of churches who need to be reformed and strengthened and built and encouraged. And so that bubbles up in their heart, the need to bring all of this to God. But then at the same time in their heart, they look around and they can count blessings one after another, after another, after all of these incalculable blessings bubbling up in the heart of the believer. And then, like you're trying to open up a soda bottle, you realize it's compressed, you try to get over to the sink just fast enough to let it into the sink before it spills out all over the, the kitchen. That, that's prayer. That's what we do when we pray. It's been in our hearts all week. It's been in our hearts all day or all night. And when we finally get to the presence of God, we can bubble forth a sensible outpouring of the affections of the heart. It's not a list. It is an outpouring of the heart. That's our attitude when we come to God in prayer. And again, they teach us about the God to whom we pray as a whole. God, the God of the Bible is not a cosmic genie. He's inside of a lamp on the shelf and whenever I need it, I'll go and rub the lamp and get the genie to come out and give me what I need. I'll put the lamp back on the shelf. That's not our God. That's not prayer. He's not a magic eight ball. We go to him and pick him up and we shake him to see what's the, what's the flavor of the week. What might be a, a good idea? What can I get out of you today? Our God is not a Ouija board that we circle around and try to conjure up some sort of vague, general message. He's not a mall Santa Claus that we go to because, well, it's that time of year and you got to do it. Get, get, sit on his lap. You don't expect anything. You know this is not the real Santa Claus because he's somewhere. You know this is not the real. And you're just doing this out of a tradition. It's a part of the fun of the holiday. That's not, that's not prayer. That's not our God. It's not, he's not like a drive through menu where you go and you pick out. There's a list of all the things he can do and you pick out what you want and you leave everything else that you don't want. God is not like a puppy who's been home all day and when you open the door, he, he's wag, wagging his tail waiting, hoping that you just give him a little bit of attention. That's not our God. And that's not prayer. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. That He decreed all things, He owns all things, and He providentially works in all things. He knows the end of every circumstance that you could ever face because He decreed it from the, before the foundation of the world. He knows how every situation in your life is going to affect every situation in every other person's life on the planet all at once because He decreed it from before the foundation of the world. That's why sometimes your prayers aren't answered the way you want them to be answered because He's doing something else. God is a mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing provider of every good and perfect thing necessary for the ultimate welfare of His people. Ultimate welfare. We love to say, well, you know, everything, all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Right, all things. When all things are done, when that's finished, that's when we'll know how they work together. Right now, we don't necessarily know, but He is giving us everything good and perfect necessary for our ultimate welfare. He's King. He's master. He's sovereign ruler. He doesn't take bribes. You're not going to come to Him and barter your goodness to get His blessings. He's not waiting on you to give Him permission to act. 
Were you to venture into his presence in your sin, as Paul Washer would say, you would melt like a wax figurine in front of a blast furnace. You would dissolve. If the mountains, Nahum tells us, if the mountains will melt, surely we would melt in his presence. Contrary to much of what is taught in modern Christianity and especially in the charismatic community, it should always seem a little strange for us to come into the presence of this God. Always. It should always feel a tad bit off because we shouldn't be here. This is not a right. We haven't deserved this or earned this. We should come into His presence fearfully. The only reason you're allowed to come to Him with your prayers is because His Son took on Himself all of the weight of God's wrath, His infinite wrath that you deserved, releasing you from their just punishment, releasing you from the debt, and inviting you into His presence. In other words, the cost is bloodshed. That's what it costs to get in the presence of God. Bloodshed. It's not a right. It's not something we've earned. And that's what it means when our Lord says, if you gather in my name. When we come to the Lord in prayer, that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We come into the presence of God. And the first thing that we want to acknowledge in our hearts and our minds is, I'm here because Christ is my surety. Christ is my hope. If it weren't for Christ, I wouldn't be here. Christ is our mediator and our high priest. We come into the presence of God, as it were, hiding in the shadow of His perfect righteousness. Because if it weren't for that, we would be consumed. And if we do not gather in His name, if we were to just, if we think we just come before the throne of grace, apart from Christ, what we're saying in effect is, God, you're really not that holy, and I'm really not that sinful. Let's just drop our weapons and let's just chat. That's not prayer. We come in the name of Jesus. Bloodshed was the cost. True, right, biblical prayer starts first and foremost with an understanding of who God is and who we are. If we start there, then our prayers will surely go up to His holy habitation and be pleasing in His ears, having been purified in our Savior's blood. But when we attempt to come a different way, to circumvent the atoning work of Christ, we're found presuming upon the grace of God, risking His wrath. Now as we come to the Lord's table, we come the same way. We come reverently. We come with worshipful hearts. We come as needy sinners coming to receive grace. We come to remember His death on our behalf. What we're doing in the Lord's Prayer is we're remembering the veil of His body that was torn from top to bottom, opening the way into the Father so that we could come and pray. So let us examine our hearts and then we will, as Paul says, participate in the body and blood of our Lord.